Well, good morning. A little bit different this morning. I'm going to have a quick announcement here at the beginning and then another one right at the end. Uh, this one is, is very, very simple, as is really the one afterwards. Uh, one thing that we've beginning to notice on Monday mornings uh, has been an increase in debris left in here, uh, styrofoam-ish debris, uh, plastic water bottles, uh, and just uh, random, it's, it's trash. And so if, if you or any of your children are, are, are whatever you're bringing in, if you could just make sure that you, you pick that up on the way out. Yeah, we realize that uh, this is not the temple. Uh, our bodies are the temple, but this is a space that we, we use for um, a public worship gathering. And so we'd like to keep it up as much as we can. So just, just please everyone do their part on that. Um, and, and, and we'd appreciate that. Uh, so uh, as we now go into uh, the text this morning in our, in, our, in our time together, we are finishing chapter 18 in the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, one of the things I've attempted to do, I think, over the weeks is, is to kind of show you that, that rather than a chapter of piecemeal teachings, uh, that this is something that is, is all tied together uh, in the life of the Christian disciple. Uh, and as now as we've gone through um, arrogance and, and what you would call a, 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 a disciple's view of, of really wondering at personal glory uh, rather than humility, which is supposed to be the essence of, of the, the redeemed, the idea that, that humility before God and one another is how we're supposed to live. And then, and then it would continue on in the teaching of, of really watching out for temptation and sin in your own life and, and the... Uh, the absolute kind of serious nature of, of deadly serious nature with how the Christian disciple is supposed to approach temptation and sin in their own life. <clears throat> and then moving on to this idea of what about the brother or sister who goes astray? And God is shown in a picture as a shepherd who pursues them. And then this, what most 18 is usually boiled down to in this aspect of church discipline, we really see as this a, this is something that is played out for the Christian church to view themselves as, as even in the smallest sense of possible, pursuing the, the brethren who have gone astray just as God pursues them. And then, if your brother sins against you, what do you do? You go to them. And, and the emphasis being that almost these it, it kind of exhaustive means to make sure that that person does actually come to repentance. And then it kind of has this kind of hard scenario, what happens when they don't? We talked about that last week, what happens when they don't? So when we, when we get into this last final section of 18, in Peter's kind of famous question, how many times must I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Is it seven times? This is the answer that Jesus gives, is the answer of what happens in that scenario when you go to your brother and they actually repent. How then are you to give forgiveness to them. So all of this chapter is dealing with the reality of fallen people 
who are redeemed and now a part of this kingdom, how are they to interact with one another with the realities of being in a sinful world that seeks to draw you away, but also just the fact that, that everyone in this, in this kingdom until Christ returns is still a sinner. And so offense is not a probability, it's, it's a guarantee. And so I'm reading all of 18 this morning. So just, you know, just so you're prepared. And then after we, I read that out loud, give you the opportunity to, to pray to God uh, yourself. Uh, pray for the Holy Spirit to open your heart and mind to the truth of the Word. A time to confess your own sins that may be hidden, at least in, in your thoughts, not hidden to God. And prepare ourselves for the ministry of the word. So reading now. Matthew 18 verses 1 through 35. At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child. He put him in the midst of them and said. Truly I say to you unless you turn and become like children. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations and sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish." If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector." Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brothers sin against me that I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times. But seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. 
And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Fathers, as we assemble this morning, we come to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord and our Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Lord, I pray that as we consider your, the truth of your word this morning, that your church would consider the heart of the gospel, of the forgiveness of the unworthy, of rebels, of adulterers, a people who at all time seek to rebel against you and worship themselves or any other God they chose to make. And yet you set your son Jesus Christ, the perfect one, the holy one, in humiliation in the flesh, never sinned, went to the cross, and died our death for us.
And so by his blood, we are forgiven an insurmountable debt we owe you. God, let us be reminded of that this morning. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, would you illuminate our minds and our hearts to your word that we would be transformed inwardly through the sanctifying work of the Spirit more and more into the image of Christ. And that our affections of our heart and our mind would be turned from dead things to you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. After the description of this, this process, this, this legal process of what a, a church discipline would look like, the confrontation of, of the grieved party going to the one who had sinned against them. And there was, there was several things mentioned way back in the beginning part of, of 18 of what that looked like. And this was not a, um, someone annoyed you. This was not someone disagreed with you. This was, this was someone sinning against you. And, and the reality of, of having to go to them. And we also talked about the most common way that we see this play out is that generally no one goes to anyone. And the conversation begins with everyone that might be in your circle of influence rather than the one person who is actually you're supposed to be talking to. And so the first step has to be this confrontation with with the sin, the person who has sinned against you. And then the way that it played out is if you go to them in the scenario in the pri in the earlier part of 18, right before this text, is what happens if they don't. There, there's the one text where Jesus says, if it, you've earned your brother, you've gained your brother, if he listens to you, meaning as someone said, I have sinned against you, I repent. Or whatever, something along those lines. You have gained them back. They are the sheep that has gone astray that has now been brought back by this act of being convicted of their own sin by the power of the Spirit and then being moved to ask forgiveness. And so then the natural question becomes, at least in Peter's mind, how many times then do I allow that to happen? And it may seem like a strange question. Seven times? And by the way, this isn't one of those moments where you're like, oh, there goes Peter again. Foot and mouth, Peter. No, this is actually a really good question. Okay, I've done all that. How many times with this one brother or this one sister who's, who is in Christ, when they sin against me, how many times do I forgive them? In common, um, a common teaching of the time, rabbinic teaching, was three times. If your fellow Jew sinned against you three times, on the third time, after the third time, there was no more forgiveness needed to be given. Because if they did it again, they were proving like almost they were like a tax collector or, or some other barbarian who was outside of the tribe. And so... A lot of ways, what Peter is doing, he's 
he's thinking of it even more than doubling what was commonly thought of at the time and what he would have been taught. He's thinking what Jesus is saying, all these things he's talking about. Well, forgiveness, okay, well, it's probably not three times just because Jesus is, is, is always put. So what about seven times? And certainly that seemed like more than double what the norm would have been. And I dare say, even if you think in your own life, if someone sins against me seven times, I'm, I might be done with them. I, I, I say that with, I would think, a lot of people in the church probably think that way. And so you have your chalkboard, seven. You're on five, and I'm letting you know, here's an automatic email that goes to you, letting you know that was the fifth time. You have two left. And then your, your name's out of the chalkboard that I hold up in my office that says an account of people's grievances against me. Or I guess the other way. And so Jesus answers this. Again, so this don't take his, this kind of interaction with, with, with Peter and Jesus as some type of rebuke. This is Jesus just letting them know the actual magnitude of what forgiveness looks like. And so one of the things, you might have a note in your, in your Bible, depending on your translation. Uh, what I read is, is from the ESV, and it says 77 times. But this, in Matthew 18, there's, there's a few kind of, you wouldn't really call them anomalies. There's a few differences grammatically based on some, some older Greek manuscripts. And so this is one of them where some of your translations might say, when Jesus responds is 77 times, some of yours might say 70 times 7, which obviously you do the math of a different number. I'm going to let you know it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all because Jesus is just putting a number that is basically meant to be like an impossible, in perpetuity idea of, oh, seven times is a lot because three times is a lot. Well, now it's this number. That's how many times. And so Jesus' response is going to lead into how he's going to teach about this attitude of forgiveness. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven, whatever your translation might say. And so the reality is that, that when we talk about forgiveness, what's the common cultural thing that is said in the West when it comes to forgiveness. And this is one of those rare times I let you all talk. Forgive and forget. It's one of those things like what that is supposed to entail is that you've forgiven somebody and now like, like poof, it's just out of my mind. I'm never going to remember what you did against me. Well, that, that's clearly not the case. There is no Magic that happens with forgiveness that allows a person to actually forget the sin that was, was done to them. That's what makes forgiveness on a natural level impossible. And that's kind of the point. It, it, is you can make it three or you can make it seven, but that will just become another thing where you put on a board like, look how righteous I am. I forgive this person seven times. Although I'm going to make sure I bring up their sin against me as often as possible. Because the more I remind them, the more I remind them 
how low they are and how righteous I am. And so Jesus turns it into this mind-boggling number. And so forgiveness isn't this idea of forgiving and then just trying to purpose yourself with amnesia. It's the idea that forgiveness within the, the family of faith takes supernatural aid. And I would say, as you get all the way through this parable to the end, you see the heart of someone who can't forgive is showing, is illustrating someone who's not a citizen of the kingdom. And in all of 18, you could really sum as some have up, 18 is what life looks like in the household of faith. Fallen people hurting each other. What's the response? The only response is forgiveness. Now, one thing these passages don't answer, and so I just want to briefly mention, is it's not dealing with what if an unbeliever sins against me? Right? Well, this, does this process take place? Can I put my boss through church discipline if they're an unbeliever? If, if you're, you know, in a meeting and he chews you out in front of everyone, calls you names, curses you out, can you walk into the next meeting and say, hold on with the slideshow, guys? Matthew 18. I see some nods. It was like, this would be a process I would embrace. Uh, this is for the household of faith. But, but at the very least, I will say this. If an unbeliever sins against you, and you go to them and say, hey, that's no way to talk to me, that's no way to treat me, this is what you said, and they actually admit it and say, you're right. That's not outside of the norm of of human life. And so the Christian should go like, wow, that was amazing. That, That was great the way that worked out. But within the household of faith, those who have the Spirit, the anticipation of forgiveness is supposed to be the mark and the bar is raised. So then, when you're actually hurt by someone within that same household, doesn't then the hurt and the disappointment also raise a little bit? And so we see it kind of all of this aspect, things that are not being mentioned. It's assumed that Christians living in a fallen world, surrounded by people who are outside of the family and faith, are going to be insulted, ridiculed, and all those things. Those are what we're told to expect from those outside. It's not what we're supposed to expect from inside, although it will continue to happen as long as the sin nature is still a reality. So Jesus then tells this great parable. He's letting him know this is what the kingdom is like. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one who was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with wife and children and all he had. And payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. 
and I will pay you everything. Now, some of you probably have have study Bibles or notes in there letting you know just, just how unreal this amount of money is. And so, and so when this, he says, the kingdom of heaven, whenever Jesus is saying that, that's, a, that's for you to remember, all the way from the back at the beginning of Matthew, this is, this is a phrase. Jesus uses this phrase, that's when it's time to pay attention. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a king. And what you want to know right away is the king is represented as, or alluding to, or an analogy to God the Father. Just letting you know, I'm giving away all the secrets if you didn't know them already. The king in this parable is God the Father. And I also want to give you a hint as we go through this uncomfortable story. The ungrateful servant is you. You're not the one who's getting choked out. You're not one of the other ones tattling. You're this one. So the king wanted to settle his accounts, going to his servants or slaves, meaning as a household of slaves. And he's going to him to say, bringing forward the one who owes him the most. Now, one talent is about 75 pounds of silver. So when you think of things like the denarii, one denarii was what you would pay a laborer his wages. For a, for a day's wage, a, ba- a basic laborer. <clears throat> so if one talent equals 75 pounds of silver, that's about 20 years of wages, just one. 20 years of wages is one talent for, for a common laborer. So if you have 10,000 talents that you're owed, I'm really bad at math, but that's 200,000 years of labor. And so people have often kind of drawn comparison through inflation and stuff like that, and they'll come up with like millions of dollars. The amount is in the billions, if you tried to understand how much. But but again, just like the 70 times 7 or the 77, don't take all these numbers and go, okay, this is the exact amount that's owed. No, the number given is a ridiculous number with with purpose. God the Father is is this king of this kingdom. The steward or this particular slave who owes this, basically at this time, unimaginable amount of money is the debtor, the human who owes, is called to pay for their sin. This insurmountable amount that can't be paid. And yet, this is why this interaction is so interesting. So if he actually owes, weight-wise, 375 tons of silver, this is what he says. He could not pay it. So the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all they had. This was a general way in the ancient Near East that if you owed something and you were given a time, there'd be a certain amount of interest, if, especially if it was someone outside of the faith, but inside the faith you can do interest. But, and if you couldn't pay, then you would be sold. You'd be sold into slavery for a time so that they could pay off 
whatever you owed. Through labor. Although he would be working for, you know, tens of thousands of years. Therefore, when he began to settle, and he could not, he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold. And the servant, watch this, 26, underline it, highlight it, or just remember it. This is his response. He fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. No. He can't pay him everything. So in the beginning, you see the attitude of, of, is, of this particular servant. He's been called to account for this insurmountable amount of money. And his first response is to beg forgiveness and says, I can pay all of it. And so, which is not true. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold. And, and, <coughs> excuse me. and so then in 27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This is kind of like you would say act one of this parable. All we know so far of either of the individuals is one owed an insurmountable amount of money, an unfathomable amount of money in this time period. No one owed that much money because no one was borrowed that much money. And so since no one's borrowed that much money, you're looking at the story just like the 77 or the 70 times 7, this amount that is owed. But then the most shocking part of the account is that when the servant begs for, for extra time, he doesn't ask that his debt be forgiven. He just says, I can pay it. I will pay it. But then the king's response is, you don't owe it anymore. Now, if you're sitting there going, okay, this is this like, is this allegory? Yes, it is. It's all supposed to be drawing your attention to the reality of what you owe. And Jesus, as he's talking to Peter and these disciples, remember this began with what? It began with their pride. It began all of this teaching with their seeking out glory between each other. Who's going to be the best one? Who's going to have the highest place in the kingdom? And Jesus is kind of like, with that attitude, none of you. Humility, not pride, not seeking glory. The glory belongs to God. And then now in this instant, we're shown in, 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 this, in, in this, this beautiful story, the heart of God and just how vast his forgiveness is. What do you owe God? You can't even put a number to it. A holy, unchanging creator <coughs> who adores and creates his creation and gives one of those creations preeminence over all of the rest of creation, and simply tells them, be fruitful, multiply, multiply work, and tend. And, and the, the, the idea is, as they do that, so all of the earth becomes like Eden, in this holy seed inhabits the earth, 
forever glorifying God through their work and through their obedience to him. But now, instead, that seed becomes one of corruption, becomes one of brokenness, sin, idolatry, everything you see. Everything we see on the news that we still act surprised at when we see and be not, don't be surprised. The degradation of this beautiful creation. And this holy creator doesn't destroy. He forgives. Your debt owed by your sin, by your nature, and by your choice You can't even put a number on it. And not just forgives you and I for it, makes a way for it to be paid by the blood of His Son. That's who God the Father is. And so then this steward not even asking for it, suddenly is forgiven this insurmountable debt. And so act two of this parable, if you, if you will, in, in 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants or slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, I already explained a denarii is about a, a day's wage, one. And so this is a pretty impressive amount that this other servant owed him is, is in essence what would be like four or five months worth of, of, a, of, of a laborer's pay. It's a huge amount. If, if any of you borrowed that amount of money to somebody, it would probably be worrisome at some point or you might be in a little bit of trouble where you would need to get paid back. Again, not the point of this. The pragmatic aspect of that is not the point. It's supposed to hearken us to the difference in both Size of what is owed and the response of the person who borrowed, if you will. So when he went out, that same servant who'd just been forgiven this insurmountable amount, he found a fellow slave or servant who owed him a a fraction, it's like one in 60,000th of what he owed. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. Now, this is not the good old side headlock with the noogie, give me what you owe me kind of thing. That's not the chokehold. The the word itself to describe it is with intent to murder. So the idea is he is showing this person if he doesn't pay him back, he's going to kill him. And think about the picture. He was just forgiven. The, the way that it's written is not, this isn't weeks or months later. This is, is, he goes from the meeting with the king and then on his way out because now he's remembering this person owes me money. He begins to choke him out to tell him, you better pay me my money. So this one who has been forgiven, again, an unfathomable amount. The forgiveness that is not of a scale or a reality that any earthly king would ever give. And then that servant goes and immediately forgets and then threatens one who owes him a tiny amount. 
compared to what he owes. Are you seeing it? The picture that he's painting through the story of the great forgiveness in the household of faith that each of us has been given is supposed to never leave here or here. Even in the midst of being hurt. Even in the midst of being sinned against. We're supposed to be reminded of our own debt. And man, that's hard. When you've been sinned against, when you've been hurt, the first thing that floods is going to be all these emotions you're trying to control. Anger. Fear. Regret. Whatever it might be. A desire to flee. A desire to fight. Whatever it might be. All these things that you're trying to get under control. And it's very rarely the first thing we thought think of is like, that makes sense. That, that, that person would sin. They're a sinner. I'm a sinner. I sin. God's forgiven me so much. That is not our natural response. Our natural response is to choke in an allegorical way. Or, or to fight back. Or to forget. Or just put ourselves first. And so this The steward says, pay what you owe. So in 29, his fellow servant fell down. The language that is used is identical. Fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will pay you. Look at verse 26. Fell on his knees, imploring him. Have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And then when he is forgiven and then this fellow servant of an equal standing, if you will, both within the same king's household, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. How many times should we forgive each other? Is it seven? Is it three? Is it 77? Is there a number we put to it? Is there a amount where you say enough is enough? Now again, I pause for one second to make a clarifying statement. Um, one, one author wrote, what is the real standard that Jesus is putting forward here? Is to go to them when they have sinned against you, remember it's still part of that narrative. <clears throat> and what happens when they repent? This isn't a what happens if they refuse. That we already went through that. But what happens if they repent? And so if they repent, this is kind of then the formula. This is then him using an allegory or a story to point what forgiveness looks like when it's supposed to reflect God's forgiveness for you. But one, as one author mentions, he's not telling you to be a wimp and just let people run all over you. Nor is he telling you to just run and never have conflict. This is what happens when comes with someone saying they forgive you 
or, or they repent and you forgive them, forgiveness or repentance has tied to it change. Meaning, when someone sins against you and they repent, there is this aspect of the whole idea of repent means turning away from whatever it was. And so there's this, there's this reality of like they've, they're, they're turning, they're stopping, or whatever it might be, or the person repented and they're not treating me this way, or whatever it might be, where then that aspect of forgiveness has to be in this total sense. And that's when I began everything talking about forgive and forget is kind of the common mantra, but it's not a reality. But forgiveness has to be given within the household of faith. That's part of understanding who you are in Christ. You are one so deeply forgiven. And if we're all coming together, as we talked about last week, and saying union with Christ is preeminent, in our relationship with each other. And that's probably easy to understand when you see somebody, maybe every Sunday or sometimes on Wednesdays, or maybe they're in your fellowship group, hey, I have union with Christ with that person. I'm reminded of this often. Maybe we're at a little, you know, disgruntled over something right now, but we've, I've forgiven or they've forgiven, forgiven. But not only that, but union with Christ is the preeminent aspect in your relationship with your spouse. with your children, if they're believers, or and hopefully you're raising them and, and teaching them. Union with Christ. And so when we put to death ourself, and we, and we amplify and lift up Christ as the example, God is the example of forgiveness. then when repentance and for, repentance is given, forgiveness has to be what follows. Stop holding things over each other's head for months, years, decades. That is neither repentance, if it's continuing, and it is not forgiveness if it has stopped. You have to model God's love for you and Christ's love for the church in your marriage to your children and to the world around you. God calls us to forgiveness in a measure that is more reflective of His measure of forgiveness to us than human measure of what have you done for me lately. So when His fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then this master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which is impossible. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. God the Father, the King, calls the people, the servants, the slaves who make up his household to be forgiving one another and using the example of his forgiveness of their debt in the way they forgive one another and to show An unforgiving heart is to show someone who is living like they don't actually belong in that kingdom. Just as a person who will not repent. Just as a person who is defined by pride. Just as a person who is living by and consumed by sin of all manner. All of this is tied into this idea, what does the kingdom look like and what do the citizens look like who live there? It's not perfection, but it's certainly lives that reflect the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells them. You contend and grieve over your sin. You acknowledge when you're the offending party. Better than one coming to you, when you know you've sinned, and who it's against, ultimately, of course, God, but the context of this has has remained utterly personal. You know you've sinned against somebody. Before they come to you, go to them. I lost my temper. I lied. Whatever it might be, please forgive me. We're to be people that are understanding of who we are. Forgiveness, repentance, humility, vigilance in our own sinfulness. These are the marks of the kingdom citizen. I hope that you look at chapter 18 this week and kind of read through it and go through what we've gone through and just kind of say, this, this is the life I'm called to in, in relationship with others who are in shared union with Christ, confessing my own sin, repenting of it, giving forgiveness where it is needed, not three times, not seven times, insurmountable amount of times. I pray that we will understand that when we are called to things like living holy lives and and watching our own sinfulness, you'll see the backdrop of this entire story is not the work of man, but the work of God. What do we look to to encourage ourselves in these moments? God's forgiveness for us. Not your work, His work. His promises. 
in the blessed hope of the return of the King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, grant mercy to us, your servants. God, if there is unconfessed sin, I pray you move in the hearts of our people to confess. If there's aggrievements that that have not been confronted, people have been sinned against, God, I pray they will be moved to talk to the one they believe has offended them. God, and in all of this, we would keep in mind for those of us that are in Christ, kingdom citizens that will one day be in glory with Christ, that we would look to the work of God and the power of God and the promise of His Word for our encouragement and our strength and in our relationships with one another. We pray all this, that you would be glorified and continue to be glorified in Christ's name. Amen.